Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the team at Project Health Monitoring. PHM provides digital solution for industry, sport and education, allowing you to focus on well-being, performance and academic engagement in real time. But more on that a little later in the episode. And welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone, for another week of Challenges That Change Us. Happy Monday. I have been so overwhelmed with the messages, love and support from everyone over these past few weeks. We honestly have the most incredible community building around this podcast and thank you for being a part of it with us. There has been quite a few corporate teams that have reached out to book a DISC personality profiling workshop over the next month or two. Don't forget to email me today if you would like us to come in and work with your team. We probably have about three spots left between now and the end of the financial year. But most importantly, let me introduce you to a very special woman, Sarah Rushbatch, who is funny, bubbly, genuine and brutally honest. She has been featured in publications such as ABC News, Mamma Mia, Women's Health, The Sunday Times, Sky News, and she is helping thousands of women across Australia in grey area drinking. What is that, you ask? Hmm, funny. That was my thought too when I first heard those words. We discuss that in depth today. But before we do, Sarah talks about her own personal journey and struggles with alcohol. We discuss anxiety, other people's opinions, all the stories that she told herself for years about her own drinking, how she minimized it, tried to moderate it, and still managed to live a high-functioning life. Alcohol served Sarah for many, many years, and she says it herself, when I was drinking, I thought I was living my best life, and how in those early days, At no point did she think her drinking was a problem. We talk about all the rules and restrictions that she placed on herself to try and curve the drinking habits and why they didn't work for her. We discuss that difference between alcoholism and grey area drinking, how and when she knew things needed to change, and then some of the steps that she took to get to where she is today. If any of this content causes you to stress, know there is help available and I invite you to call Lifeline on 131114. I know you guys are going to love this episode. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast Challenges That Change Us. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, I always love to start every interview with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? So I would say a butterfly because I feel like I have had two distinct changes or shifts in my life. And there was the life when I was drinking, which I would describe as my caterpillar life. 
And then there is the life where I feel like I emerged from this chrysalis and I then became a butterfly. And with sobriety for me has come freedom and everything you think about with a butterfly flitting around in the air doing whatever they want and that is something that resonates with me so deeply from kind of that trapped feeling of the caterpillar trying to get out and not being able to and then emerging and and that's how I would describe my life and how that's been. It's so interesting to hear you say that because I often think that for when people are in that time of their life where they are drinking a lot they may not necessarily feel trapped. Some people do, but there's a lot of people that are just doing it and just it's just the way it's always been and they don't know what it feels like to even experience life in a different way. I had no idea. When I was drinking, I thought I was living my best life. I yeah. kind of thought this was as good as it got. Like I looked forward to my boozing with my friends. That was when I caught up. That was when I kind of escaped my husband and kids and I can go and be with the girlfriends and drinking. And I thought that's just how it is. And it's only since I removed alcohol that I've realized how small my life was when I was drinking and how much it's opened up since I quit. Oh my God. So we need to talk about this now. This was meant to be like 10 minutes down the track of the podcast, but let's go there. So can you tell us a little bit about that life, like that caterpillar life and and what that looked like and how that showed up in your world? So I started drinking at a really young age. I grew up in the north of England and at the age of 14, I had been to five different schools. My dad had moved around a lot for his work and I'd always felt like the new girl. I'd always felt like I had to try and fit in. I was always having to work hard to get people to like me, to to get some friends. And at 13, we made our final move to Manchester from Scotland and I had this terrible perm, really bad makeup, turned up at this really strict private all-girls school and was kind of like, oh God, I got my work cut out here. But this coincided with the stage where we started drinking. So we used to fill up soda stream bottles with like vodka and Cinzano and Southern Comfort and Sherry and whatever you could find in your parents' drinks cabinet. And we'd take them down the local park and we'd add a bit of Coca-Cola on top and we'd drink them. And of course, you know, you hated the taste, but oh my goodness, Ali, that's a time that I remember that for the first time in my life, I didn't feel like I had to work to fit in. I felt like, ah, I'm accepted. This is a great feeling. And then you start getting the feedback. Oh, you're so fun when you're drunk. Oh, like, you know, you're, you're so exciting when you're drunk. And so for me, what started then was alcohol became something that I learned to create connection. It's something that I quickly learned helped me to feel like I fitted in. And it was something that I identified with that was the fun Sarah. That was what people seemed to like was me being drunk. And so what followed for me from there was years of drinking socially and drinking a lot. It was also the the era of girl power. The girls can drink as much as the boys. You know, I loved being like one of the lads down the student union, pint for pint with the boys of your cider and your beer and what have you. And, And that just continued all of my life. But at no point did I think oh, my drinking's a problem. Yeah, I drank a lot, but that was just my identity. I was Sarah the party girl. I was the one that was last one standing at the party. And I moved to London. And and my first job in London after uni was in recruitment. And the fourth stage of the interview process was going to the pub to do shots of Sambuca to see how well you could handle your booze. 
So I passed with flying colors, got the job, as you can imagine. And then what followed for me was from 1998 to 2009, just drinking a lot socially. Like in London in those days, you would go and get smashed at lunchtime and go back to your desk. No one had a car. No one drove in London because you got the tube everywhere. So you'd think nothing to go to the pub on a Monday night, getting absolutely smashed, going home, having some beans on toast, waking up in the morning, doing it all again on Tuesday. And that was just what we did. And at no point did I think my drinking's a problem. At no point was it a cause for concern. No one was saying to me, oh, Sarah, you're drinking too much. You need to watch it. I was just drinking the way that other people were drinking. And then I got married, had a baby, and things kind of changed for me. We made the decision to move to Australia and everything in my life changed. But of course, the one thing that I had always used as a way to make friends and to fit in was alcohol. But we got here and I got pregnant again straight away. And all of a sudden, of course, I was pregnant, so I couldn't drink. So the one thing that I'd use to make friends, to connect, to be able to, to feel, get some confidence in a group of new people was alcohol and I couldn't do that. And I really struggled, like really struggled with my identity. I had some, you know, I had a baby and then I suddenly had another baby in very close succession. I'd left my family, I'd left my friends, I'd left my career. We'd moved to the other side of the world. My husband was setting up a business that so he was working all the time. Suddenly I was at home with two really, really young kids and I was so homesick and I was so lonely. And after my daughter was old enough to be weaned and I wasn't breastfeeding anymore. Alcohol became a really good friend. It's the only way I could describe it. it. Because what alcohol does is it makes all those yucky feelings go away because it's not nice to sit there feeling lonely or homesick or sad or any of those feelings. And so I just drank to make those feelings go away. And the problem was I just kept on drinking. And so what had once been something that I did to socialize was now something I was doing on my own at home. And my husband would come home from work and I can remember I would stand on the edge of the driveway with tears streaming down my face with a baby and a toddler and I would just hand them to him. I would go inside, I would get my wine, I would get my sneaky fags, I would go and hide behind the, the washing line and I would just drink and smoke until I didn't feel anymore. Mm. Yeah, that, and that just continued for a very long time. And honestly, there's so many parts of your story already that as a mom and as an Australian woman, I'm like, yep, 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 yep. You know, like right from the get go where you were like, this is how we party and everyone thinks it's fun. And, you know, it's so in a way can seem so inclusive and like, you know, and then as a mom, like I'm only thinking of the mums that I know, how many of them, it's the first thing, right? End of the day, reach for a wine. Like, let me just have 10 minutes to myself. I'm going to have a beer. Yeah. Or a wine. You know, you can see how easily it becomes, like you said, your friend. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is that it's really insidious the way it builds up. It's really subtle and we build tolerance to it quite quickly. And so what starts off as one or two glasses isn't enough after a little period of time. And then we need the third glass and then we're finishing the bottle. And it was not unusual for me to drink a bottle most nights and sometimes to crack open the second. And 
I was high functioning. By, by this point, I had set up my own recruitment business here in Perth. The kids were daycare and then they were school and I was working and I had the kids and I was, you know, like I said to you, I was running half marathons. I was going to the gym. On the outside, it looked like I had it all. I was high functioning, but I was drinking at such a significant level. And it astonishes me now. And this month I celebrate four years sober. It astonishes me now what my body could do with the amount of alcohol I was drinking. Yeah, and I think that's something that's not spoken about very often or very much is is what does a high-functioning alcoholic look like or someone that drinks too excessive and can still do all of these things that people look at from the other side of the fence and think, oh, my God, they're doing so much. They're coping so well. They're, you know, And as you said, internally that's not what's going on. No, absolutely. And I think that that's where it's really important that we just kind of talk about what is an alcoholic and what is a grey area drinker because Mm -hmm. an alcoholic, we actually don't use that term in the health world anymore, in the medical world, they don't use that term because there's not a certain amount that you go, when you drink that much, you're a social drinker. And then when you drink that much, you become an alcoholic. It's it's not as clear cut as that. So in the UK and in um, America and Australia, they now have a term called alcohol use disorder. Mm. And you have a spectrum of that. So it might be mild, moderate, severe. Because we've always thought of an alcoholic as being someone who wakes up in the morning with trembling hands and has to reach for a drink in in order to be able to function. They've usually lost their job, their home, their marriage, their driving license. They might be sitting on a park bench drinking out of a brown paper bag. And that is not the majority of people that have a problem with alcohol. But the problem is that because we're high functioning, we don't identify with the term alcoholic, which is very, very full of stereotype and full of stigma and makes people feel so much shame that people who have a problem with drinking, they don't identify as that because they go, well, I don't drink every day and I don't drink in the morning. So therefore, I'm not an alcoholic. And so this is where we can start talking about gray area drinking, which is we're not a take it or leave it drinker. We're not someone that just has a drink every now and then, but nor are we an end stage physically dependent user of alcohol, someone who needs to wake up in the morning and drink because alcohol is one of only three substances in the world that the human body can die from withdrawal from. And the other two, one of them is illegal and one of them you have to get on prescription. And yet alcohol was listed as an essential service during lockdown. It's kind of crazy, right? The fact of the matter is, if we're not an end stage physically dependent user of alcohol that needs medical support to stop drinking, but nor are we a take it or leave it drinker, what are we? Mm -hmm. And that's where grey area drinking comes in. And we haven't even started to open the discussion around what about if you change when you have one drink? What if you're someone that has one drink and then finds that you know, the world becomes a dark place or you get really aggressive or, you know, as a result of that. Like we haven't even touched on that yet. It's it's really quite complicated and complex when you start to break it down. Yeah, it absolutely is. And like one of the most common questions that I get asked, Ali, by people who've discovered that I don't drink anymore, they'll say to me, oh, but how much were you drinking? Because they want me to say to them, I was drinking X and they can go, phew, I don't drink that much, so I don't have to stop. And it's not about the number, it's about the feeling. And it is simply about how's alcohol making you feel? And for some people, it might make them feel terrible after two glasses. For some, it might be two bottles. For some, it might be something in between. It kind of doesn't matter. It's not about a number, it's about a feeling. Mm -hmm. 
and the emotional attachment to what what makes you reach out to it in the first place. Totally. Mm. totally. Before we get into grey area drinking and I know the audience is going to just want me to open this up right now, but I want to ask you about you a little bit more before we go into that. So what was the, when you look back now, what was the hardest part for you along your journey? The hardest part was leading up to the date that I finally quit drinking because I tried so, so hard, Ali, to moderate my drinking. And I thought it was my fault. I thought I had to try harder. So April 2017, a few things happened for me that made me realize that my drinking had reached a point where I couldn't carry on the way I was. The first was I'd gone to a party, a friend's 40th, and I'd gone outside to to have a fag because I smoked when I drank. And I was wearing high heels and I crouched down to put the cigarette out. And because I was drunk, I had no reflexes or balance. I toppled forward and I landed on my face on a concrete driveway. And I cut open, split my lip, cut my nose, blood all over my, my face and everything. My friend took me home and put me to bed. I don't really have much memory of it. And I woke up the next morning to my five-year-old daughter standing next to the bed. And she was saying, mommy, what happened to your face? And you know that moment where you don't remember and then suddenly you remember the horror of, of the night and, and all of and my, I was in so much pain, like physical and emotional at the humiliation, the embarrassment. Why do I always do this? Why do I always get so drunk? What, what's wrong with me? And, and that night I was in such a bad place mentally but I couldn't drink anything because my mouth, my lips were about four times their usual size and they were so bruised and cut and everything. But I just needed something to take the pain away. And so I was drinking wine through a straw because it was the only way I could still get that, that alcohol into my body because I needed to numb and I didn't know any other way. So the next day I went to the local chemist because I was like, far out, like, look at the state of my face. I've got a job to do. I've got to, I'm a, you know, and I was like, what can, what can you give me to make all of this go away? Um, and so she gave me, you know, Arnica and ibuprofen and all the stuff that you would put on cuts and grazes. And then she slipped me a card for a domestic violence helpline. And I just felt sick to the stomach because my husband would never touch me. And the thought that that woman had thought that I was the victim of domestic violence because my face looked like I'd had someone beat the crap out of me, like doing 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. And I just felt so much shame in that moment. And I knew that I had to change my drinking. It had just got to the level where I was lying to myself. I had rules that I wasn't allowed to drink on a Monday and Tuesday. And I got to the point where I was hiding red wine behind all the olive oil bottles and the, you know, all the, those bottles in the pantry. And it was almost like if I hid it from myself, I could pretend I wasn't doing it. And I would go into the pantry and I would put red wine into a coffee cup on a Monday and pretend that I was looking for pasta and I would be going it out of this coffee cup and then coming out going, oh, I can't find the pasta anywhere. And pretending to myself that I wasn't even doing what I was doing. Like it had just got to the point. But as I said to you before, 
I was still high functioning. I was still running half marathons. I was still running a really successful recruitment business. Like nobody knew that I had a problem. So 2017, shortly after the the face planting incident, I had another boozy, boozy night, still hadn't learned, went out for a friend's birthday at 12 o'clock lunchtime, one of those free flowing champagne breakfast type things. I got home at two in the morning. So 14 hours of drinking champagne. And at seven in the morning, I woke up to my son standing at the end of my bed in his cricket gear going, mom, mom, it's time to go to cricket. And my husband had already got out. He was off fishing with his mates. And I stood up and almost passed out. And I knew that I couldn't drive because I was still over the limit because I'd just had a 14 hour bender and I'd had about four hours sleep. And I couldn't drive my son at eight o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning to the thing that he loves most in the world because I was still pissed. And that was really quite confronting. And so those things had happened in quite quick succession. And that day I was lay on my, um, on the sofa, because that was the other thing. When you're hungover, it's not like you can do anything. I would just waste days on end scrolling Facebook, playing Candy Crush, just wasting my weekend because I had no ability to do anything else. And I came across a post in my running group, because of course I was very active in my running group, by someone saying, oh, I've read this book about alcohol. It's really changed my relationship with alcohol. And as a result, my running has really improved. And I was like, ah, this sounds interesting. Let me get this book. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do a 21 day detox. I'm gonna take 21 days off booze because everyone tells me that that's how long it has to be to change a habit. And I'll just, I'll be fine after that. So I read the book hugely had a massive impact on me. I did 21 days and I got to the end of the 21 days and I was like, I'm going to keep going because I feel amazing. I feel like this is what it's like to sleep through the night and not get that 3am wake up that I was getting every time I drank. My, My drinking had got so bad that every time I drank, I was taking a sleeping tablet so that I didn't get the alcohol-induced 3 a.m. wake up. But you can imagine what it's like to wake up after a bottle of wine and a sleeping tablet. And I don't know how I was getting through the days, Ali. Honestly, I look back now and I was like, how did I even function? But I did. And I did my 21 days. I kept going. And it was just like someone had lifted this like cloud inside my head. And I was like, oh, I have clarity. I have motivation. I have positivity. I achieved more in that three months at work than I achieved in the entire year, the year before, in terms of like what my financial billings were. I I billed 12 months worth of business in that three months that I was sober because I was motivated and I had energy and I was positive and I was just like, there was nothing holding me back. But the thing that was the hardest that I hadn't been prepared for was other people's opinion of me not drinking. Because it turns out that your boozy friends don't like it when you don't drink anymore. There was even the case at the school gate. Sometimes it would be, oh, let's catch up when you're drinking again. And I would just stand there and it was like, no, 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 I'm still me. You can still spend time with me just because I'm not drinking. But of course, for me, going back to my story at the beginning, I was always the new girl. I was always trying to fit in. That was so hard for me. It was like a thump in the heart because it was like, oh, I'm not good enough unless I'm drinking. And it reinforced all those old thoughts and, and limiting beliefs that unless I drink alcohol, people don't like me. And so I got 
to 100 days, which was where I wanted to get to. And I was like, okay, I'm not an alcoholic because if I was an alcoholic, I wouldn't have been able to just take 100 days off. I clearly just needed to reset. Now I'll be a normal, moderate drinker. Everything will be fine. And I will go back into society as someone that just drinks every now and then, like all the normal people in the world. And within about two weeks, I was back to drinking the same amount as before. And, you know, going back to your question, what was the hardest time? That two years between 2017 and 2019 was hideous. But it's where the growth came for me because it was where I got that realization I would never be able to moderate. I kept trying. I tried so, so hard. But in the end, it wasn't about that. I'm never, ever going to be a moderate drinker. Like alcohol had it had served too much of a purpose in my life for too long. I got too much from it. Then in the end, I realized it's easier to say none than it is to say one. And so that two years, I took breaks. I went back to drinking. I binged heavily. I hated myself. I took another break. I went back to drinking. The binge cycle, that cycle was relentless. It was exhausting. But ultimately, I'm so grateful to have had that two-year period because it was what allowed me to reach the point of freedom, which was in saying, I am such a better person. I'm a better mum, a better wife, a better friend. I love myself more. I get more out of my life when I don't drink. Why am I fighting so hard to keep this class one carcinogenic substance in my life when I know all the stuff now and I'm never going to be able to moderate? And so April 2019, I had my last drink. So I have about 300 questions. So <laughs> how much time do you have? I was like writing down, I'm going to ask this. Oh, no, actually, I'm going to ask this. No, actually, let me ask this. And now I feel like, which one do I ask? There's so many. And obviously, I want to ask about what happened for that big shift, you know. But before we go there, before we do, there were a couple of things in what you said being at least 20. One of them was when you said your friends don't like you when you stop, you know, and and one of my questions is, isn't that an interesting thing that we experience is when you stop a behavior and either you feel like they don't like you because we've resonated so much with who we are with that behavior or they are actually reactive to it because what's it saying about them? Sometimes it's also that kind of mirror piece, isn't it? It's like, oh, my God, is she stopping? Do I actually need to stop? Or should I not be doing this? Or, you know, so I just that was one of the things I thought of when you were talking then around what happened in that friendship group because I see that a lot is that the person that's trying to change a behaviour, whether it be drinking or something else, either feels that they're going to be judged by the other person or they don't know how to be in that situation anymore, you know? Yeah. And the thing about grey area drinkers is that we tend to surround ourselves with other grey area drinkers because like when I was drinking, I avoided people that didn't drink or I avoided people that only had one or two because it just made me feel bad. I was just like, no, no, no. I need to find the other people that are happy to sit there. She's got her bottle. I've got mine. And there's no judgment here. Thank you very much. So of course, as soon as I stopped drinking, other people didn't know how to be around me. And the other thing was that I, if I had my time again, I would have handled it differently. But what I I went in with the attitude of, I can't let anyone know that I've got a problem. So I've just got to pretend that oh, I'm just doing a detox. Oh, I'm just, I just want to lose a bit of weight or I'm just doing this. And I didn't share 
the impact that alcohol had been having on me in terms of my anxiety, in terms of my sleep, in terms of my own sense of self. And so I just pretended I minimized it because I was ashamed of the point that I'd got to with my drinking. And because I minimized it, it gave other people permission to kind of be like, oh, come on, just have one. Oh, don't be so boring. Whereas if I'd actually sat there and gone, do you know what? I've been really struggling and my drinking has got to a really scary level. And I really, really need to knock that on the head because it's taking so much from me. I think people would have treated me so differently, but because I minimized it, it gave them permission to also minimize it. Mm -hmm. And also like from a professional sense as well, there's always a fear of like, will people judge me professionally? And then will they judge me socially? And will they, as we said, so complex. But the other thing that I heard you talk a lot about then was your self-talk and your self-language during those years that you were drinking, because it sounds like you were kind of really mean to yourself. Oh, and, and this is the thing, like I've supported thousands of people now to change their drinking. And the thing that we always marvel on is how quickly our inner critic diminishes when we remove alcohol. Because this was my cycle. Wake up in the morning, piece together the night. Oh God, I drank so much more than I said I was going to. Oh my, like you, you start your day just simply being hard on yourself and, and like bitching to yourself, going, you're a terrible person. You can't follow your own rules, full of self-loathing, full of remorse, full of regret. And then you go, okay, how am I going to get out of this? Right, that's it. I'm not drinking again. I'm, I'm going to take three or four days off. I'm definitely not drinking tonight. Right, that's going to make me feel better. And then by five o'clock, you're pouring another a glass and you're back in that same old cycle. And so you want to change, but you don't know how and you don't know where to start. And we've got to remember that alcohol is highly addictive. And even though we don't classify ourselves as being alcoholics, we're probably still addicted to alcohol. It's just one of those substances that there's so much shame and stigma around the addiction. We're, we're happy to say, I'm addicted to sugar, I'm addicted to coffee, I'm addicted to my phone. But if you say you're addicted to alcohol, shame on you, shame on you, you're a bad person, you know, and you feel like you've got to hide and, and not own up to that. And so that's something I'm on such a mission to change as well. Mm. This is a shout out to all the teachers, parents and principals that may be listening. We all know I'm a big advocate for improving your mental health, but how can you know when to act? PHM, otherwise known as Project Health Monitoring, provides a versatile, safe and secure digital platform that allows students a means to communicate current and emerging issues in real time. The platform provides educators with data to take targeted and timely action so that their students feel known, valued and cared for. PHM takes away the days of second guessing. With children increasingly connected via technology, the PHM approach allows students to initiate a conversation without having to raise their hands. Students need to feel connected and empowered by being directly engaged socially and emotionally. For a free project health check on your school, please click in the link provided in our show notes. This will enhance your students' well-being, performance, and their academic outcomes. Now, back to the show. And what changed for you when you said you had those two years and you said those two years were the hardest? What changed in your world? In terms of what led to me making the change, I made the decision in March 2019 that I was going to take six months off because I'd never done six months before. So I'd come off the back of a very, very boozy summer. Probably my drinking was at its absolute worst that it had ever been. 
And I was in a sober group with other women who I'd done sober challenges with in the past. And so I was still in a WhatsApp group with them. And I went and they were all still sober. And I went into the WhatsApp group and I said, this is it. I've got the answer. This time I'm going to stop for six months and then I'll be all right. And one of the girls, my beautiful friend, Kay, she replied and she went, why are you still lying to yourself? Why do you think that if you take six months off, that that's going to be the thing that's going to make you able to moderate your drinking? You know that you are a happier, better person without alcohol. So why are you beholden to it? Why do you still put a life with alcohol still in it as the ultimate, like, aim of what you're trying to get? Why don't you accept that actually it's down to you to create your best life without alcohol? So I was pissed when I'd sent my message saying, I'm going to do six months. So she came back and said that to me. Sarah Rusbach has left the group because I just couldn't hear it. I was just like... Bitch. <laughs> She's out. Really? Right, that's it. So I left the group. So then all the girls are messaging me going, Sarah, are you okay? What's happened? What's happened? And I woke up the next morning and I just sat there and I just thought, she's right. She is so right. All I'm doing is chasing something that actually doesn't exist for me. I'm never going to be able to moderate. And even if I could moderate, it would be from a position of still lacking because I would always want to drink because I loved getting drunk, Ali. Like for me, I never wanted one or two. I loved that oblivion. I loved that that sense of just everything's just gone for a while. Like that hedonistic part of me that just would come out every time I drank. And so I never drank to just have one or two. But society conditions us to believe that that's what we should be able to do and that life is better if you can have a glass of wine with your roast dinner and all of that nonsense that is just brilliant marketing and advertising by big alcohol. And I've fallen for that book, line and sinker. But actually what Kate did was make me realize every time I take a break from alcohol, my life is better. Every single time without fail, there is never anything that is not better in my life. And so I then said to myself, oh, she's right. So I set the date and I just knew that that was going to be my date forever. And I set the date for the day after a friend's 40th. And I was like, that's it. I'm going out with a bang. I'm going to go and have a huge night. So I got my hair and makeup done. And it was kind of like Sarah, the ultimate party girl. This was my last shebang. I got there. I had two drinks and I went home because I was so ready. I was so ready for the, the rest of my life. And going back to that butterfly that was the day I climbed out of the chrysalis. The part that we're not acknowledging, though, is you were trying so hard. And I think I just want to have a conversation around that because there's so many people in my world I have similar conversations that you and I are just having now. And that's one thing I do see is they do try. And we're listening to your story. And you were trying. Yeah, I tried. So the thing that we don't get taught about alcohol is this. And I know your, your listeners can't see my visual, so I'm going to try and explain it. When you have, let's just say you're having a five out of 10 day, right? And you come home from work and you're like, oh yeah, right. That was a pretty average day. I really feel like a glass of wine. You have a glass of wine and all of these neurological responses happen with regards to your neurotransmitters. So you get a big surge of dopamine that is like that pleasure reward center that gets lit up and it's like, woohoo, we're here to party. 
And then you also get a big surge of GABA. And GABA is the neurotransmitter that makes us feel calm and relaxed. And that's why alcohol is a depressant, right? So you get the, the hit of dopamine that's like the pleasure center. You get the hit of GABA that is a very strong hit that just makes you feel relaxed. The problem is our beautiful brain cannot bear this imbalance in our neurotransmitters. So we've had a five out of 10 and we've just had a drink and that neurological response has meant that we've gone up to about seven or eight out of 10. The brain is so clever that it wants to keep balance of your neurotransmitters as much as it can. So in order to counter the impact of the GABA, so the relaxing chemical, it gives a huge surge of cortisol, the stress hormone. So what happens is the alcohol wears off and then you come, you don't go back to your five out of 10, you then come down to about a three out of 10 because now you've not got the impact of the alcohol. You've got this excess cortisol firing around your body that was an impact of the result of the fact that you've just had a drink in the first place and you're left feeling about a two or three out of 10. So then you're craving another drink simply to get back to the five, the baseline of where you started. And so what I realize now is why I could never just have one because for me, that neurological response was so strong, that neurotransmitters that after having one drink, I would feel a bit on edge as soon as it wore off and a little bit like out of sorts, which was all of that excess cortisol. So then I was craving another drink simply to get rid of the impact that was caused by the first drink. So what do you say to someone that's just heard that, that is like eyes open and like, uh uh-oh, this is me. (laughs) You know, like there's people that are going to be listening to this that are just like, ah. Yeah. And so this is where I come in to say there's another way of doing life and there's another way of being you that is not having to rely on a five o'clock alcoholic drink every night just to get you through. We can start to build a toolkit of other things that support us in a way more healthy way that allow us to live our life with so much more fulfillment and so much more happiness and joy because they've done studies now, people that drink regularly, and this is not people that are drinking even a bottle of wine a night, this is people that are drinking a couple of glasses three or four nights a week, have got a higher baseline of the stress hormone cortisol than people who don't drink at all. And that's simply because of that neurological impact of what happens when we drink. So because of that, people who think that they're drinking to relieve their anxiety, they don't understand that alcohol is causing it. And the number one thing that people say when they come and work with me after removing alcohol is, all my anxiety is gone. It's that cycle, isn't it? It's that, you know, it's the same as the sleep stress cycle. It's like what comes first? We don't know because we haven't separated them out. Exactly, exactly. And before we go into, Sarah, because I want to ask you specifically about grey drinking and I want to ask some really good strategies around this, I was wondering when you said no one noticed, you've said that a couple of times throughout this interview, did your husband not notice? Did your kids not notice? Did your best friends not notice? Friends, no, because I definitely didn't ever share with them. My kids were quite young when I stopped. So, Mm. well, my son was nine when I stopped and my daughter was seven. And so they probably wouldn't even remember that much about my drinking. My husband 
definitely knew, but my husband had a very dysfunctional relationship with alcohol as well. And so we were just each other's enablers. So it was it was a toxic situation from that perspective. And I find that that's the case with so many of my clients is that if your partner is also your best drinking buddy, when you come to stop, that can be really, really hard in a, in a marriage or relationship. Particularly if one party wants to stop and the other one's not quite there yet. I mean, that can be a totally. very challenging situation to navigate. And not even not being there yet. I've got clients whose partners have said to them, if you stop drinking, I will leave you. That's the role, how important the role of alcohol has in their marriage, Mm. which is scary, right? Mm. And it's hard to know that there, like you said, that there can be another way. If you've never experienced another way, how can you know that it's possible? How can you know that it's true? It's through these kind of stories that can be really helpful to kind of go, oh, there is or there could be. Totally, because for most of us growing up, Like I saw my parents drank quite a lot, but it was never problematic. It was fun. It was what adults did to socialize. It was all just dinner parties and raucous laughter. And so for me as a young girl, the first message I ever had about alcohol was it's fun and it's what you do to socialize. And so it was never a question of would I or wouldn't I drink? It was simply when would I drink? And so so looking at those kind of old messages that we've even had from such a young age. And then the second thing, we've got to be aware of looking at what the, the product placement of alcohol, where we're getting this subliminal messaging all the time that you need alcohol to relax, that you need alcohol to have fun, even not even direct advertising, but product placement in TV shows. I was watching a police drama the other day. And the first thing that the the lead female detective does when she gets home, she doesn't even take her coat off. She goes straight to the fridge and pours herself a glass of wine. And then you see this physical, ah, as she has that glass of wine. Like we are constantly, constantly being fed the message Alcohol soothes us, alcohol relaxes us, alcohol is self-care. And I can tell you now, alcohol is anything but self-care. And I must admit when you said that part (laughs) about, you know, your parents and fun and I'm like, I think my kids would say that about, you know, Flinny and I. Like they would say that they'd be like, oh, you're so much fun when you have a few drinks and, you know, get up on the kitchen table and have a dance or whatever. Like, you know, and so... Yeah, definitely. Like when you said that, I was like, oh, yes. What messaging am I giving my children? <laughs> yeah, you know? because that's the whole thing. Like That's when they get are... a babysitter. It's like, you, we'll get you a fun babysitter. We're going out, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, they've done research that shows that daughters of women who drink a lot never learn self-care mm. because they just see their mum using alcohol to soothe away every uncomfortable emotion and that's what they go on to do like my daughter back in the day on mother's day and stuff you know they make those cards mum's favorite drink wine and I used to think that was hilarious now it just makes me sick to my stomach that my daughter was growing up with the message that her mum's favorite drink was wine like I see all the mother's day cards that are out there of oh thanks you know my mum drinks wine because I wine and all of those things it's just disgusting so say I know the question on everyone's minds going to be, but how did you do it? Like, it's one thing to kind of have that moment where you're like, I'm going to do it. And for some people that that will look like a point in time, like you said, for others, it might be leading into it. You know, that journey will look different for everyone. But what happened after? How did you do it? So in the world of sobriety, we talk about 
the work of sobriety or we talk about someone being a dry drunk and someone who's a dry drunk is someone who removes alcohol but doesn't do any of the work to address why they were drinking in the first place at such a significant level or to add in a whole host of other tools into their toolkit to support their sobriety. And so you've got two types of people. You've got those that fully embrace this new way of living, or you've got those that feel resentment and anger and they're pissed off and they're like, it's not fair. Why can't I be? And that's probably how I'd been every other time. And I'd simply crossed off the days and all of that. So this time around, I knew I had to do the work. I was in enough sober groups to know that the work of sobriety was what would make it stick. And I didn't want to feel like I was living a less than life. I didn't want to feel like my life was in any way lacking because I wasn't drinking anymore. And I knew enough women by this point who were a few years ahead of me on that sober path who were saying, you have to do the work. And I was like, but what is the work? Tell me what the work is and I'll go and do it. I'm looking up the dictionary and it's not (laughs) in there. (laughs) Yeah. So the work is, it's really comprehensive. Like I went into therapy. So I made the decision six weeks after that day where I had my last drink to go and seek out therapy and understand what was I carrying from childhood that I needed to unpack, that I needed to understand about myself so that I could break free and perhaps heal some some unhealed trauma within me. And honestly, Ali, I went into it going, well, there's nothing to see here. I had an ideal upbringing. Mum and dad all argued a bit, but it was never, you know, terrible. They separated after I'd left home. We always had food on the table. We had nice holidays, like nothing to see here. And I had that first therapy session and I literally just, he got the whiteboard out and he showed me all of this stuff. And I sat there with my jaw on the floor, just going, Oh, that was when I kind of went, yeah, I've got a little bit of work to do here. And honestly, that has been life-changing for me to actually, I've, I've peeled back the layers and I've got to know who I am at my very core beyond who my drinking persona was or who, or my professional persona. I've actually got to know my authentic self. And, and that has taken work. Like I've been seeing my therapist on and off for four years and it's been incredible. Like everyone needs a therapist as far as I'm concerned. But I do think that for most of us, when we stop drinking, we realize that we've been using it for a reason. We're not stupid. If we've got to the point that our alcohol consumption has started creeping up and it's become more significant and we've entered that gray area, then we're getting something from it. So we really need to look at what were we getting. For me, it was a few different things. It was connection. So I realized that I needed to create connection with people where alcohol wasn't involved. The second thing was stress. Like there is no denying that when you are working hard, raising kids, running a household, you've got pressure to to look good, to be fit, to make home-cooked meals, don't even get me started on bloody book week. You know, like the pressure of life is immense. And the thing about alcohol is that it's a really quick fix to make those feelings go away, but we can do it while we're multitasking and we can drink our wine while we're making dinner, unloading the dishwasher, running the bath, getting the sandwiches ready for the next day. And that's why so many of us do it, because we feel guilty taking time away to go and and do something else for ourselves. So that's the second part of this work of sobriety. It's creating boundaries and it's prioritizing yourself. Because I know if I get to the point where I'm stressed and knackered, 
it's going to be way harder for me to resist the temptation to drink than if I've, I've looked after myself. And so for me, it came down to exercise. I'd always been an exerciser, but I started to love my runnings and, and really started to smash my PBs and getting some really good times because I wasn't drinking or smoking fags anymore. I really cleaned up my diet because it turns out that when we're eating all that hangover shit food the next day after a big boozy night, it also makes us feel rubbish. I established a really good sleep routine. I started prioritizing self-care and, and, and I don't mean self-care in terms of, oh, I'm just going to go and have a nice bubble bath. It was it was one of the things that soothed my overly activated nervous system. And so nervous system regulation has become key for me. And then I've started exploring, what do I do for fun? Because there's such a myth out there that, oh God, a sober life is a boring life. Like, And that's what I thought. Like if someone said to me they were sober, I was like, boring. And like, must avoid them at all costs. But my life is more fulfilling, richer, more purposeful than it's ever been before. And because I'm open to trying new things, I've just been on a Wim Hof retreat doing ice baths and breath work. And I've done Coast Trek walking 35K around the um, the Margaret River. Like we've, I've started opening up to trying and doing new things and adding stuff in that I find exciting and interesting. And then I've also had to look at who are the people that I spend time with? Who are the people that light me up? Who do I add into my life? If I'm not always hanging out with people whose main focus is getting pissed every weekend. Again, so many questions. <laughs> I'm like, which part do I go? One is, you know, and I often hear this when you're speaking to someone that has kind of been through it, right? Like you have been doing this work, you said, for four years. Yeah. And it can sometimes sound towards the like not that there is ever an end, but where you are now that it's like I did this and I did this and I did this and it's like there's there's a space in between that. There's that really hard work of even trying to work out what sleep strategies work or how do I build nutrition if all I'm used to eating is takeaway, how do I cook veggies? How do I boil the water for pasta? I mean some really what now for you might be your every day back then might have felt like a mountaintop out of reach. Oh, totally, totally. And that's why we don't have to try and do everything at once. You know, you just start with what's important. And for me, I know the number one reason I've ever self-sabotaged in my life is lack of sleep. Like sleep is a massive one for me. So I knew that sleep had to be a priority for me. And that had to, and I started to recognize, well, if I sit on my phone and then I go straight to bed, it takes me ages to fall asleep. So therefore I need to turn my phone off an hour before I go to bed so that I fall asleep when I want to. It, because what happened was when I removed alcohol, I started being able to tune into my body so much more. And I was able to listen to the signals and the clues and the messages that my body was giving. And when I was drinking, I either didn't hear them or I didn't want to hear them and I just shoved them back down. And so I started to tune into me a lot more, which was amazing. And when you mentioned sleep then, you said that you, you know, you noticed that the screen time was something that affected you. But one thing that I've heard a lot of people talk about is if they're not drinking, the sleep gets worse at first. Yeah. You know, because if there's trauma in the background, if they're having nightmares, if they're waking up agitated, if they don't have the strategies in place for, you know, when you wake up and you think about all the things you've got to do and it can feel really overwhelming, like a flood of overwhelm, what would you say to that? Yeah, and that's really common and that's why working with someone like me or another coach when you remove alcohol, 
will make it all so much smoother than trying to do it yourself because I provide all the strategies that help with sleep in the early days because it can be hard. Most of my clients have been using alcohol to fall asleep. And although it completely destroys your sleep and leads to you waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. and then can't get back to sleep, it does cause us to pass out at the beginning. And so I provide lots of strategies to help my clients in those early days. And I find that the first four or five nights, they'll really struggle to fall asleep. But usually it starts to settle and then they'll go through a phase where they can't do anything but sleep. And they're like, Sarah, why am I so tired all the time? (laughs) And I'm like, this is your body healing. This is your beautiful body starting to repair and to heal. And so let it do its job. And to be kind, you know, if you've spent 20 years getting to where you are, you're not going to undo it in two days or two weeks, you know. It takes time. Well, I mean, to give you a stat on that. It takes 72 hours for alcohol to leave your system and it takes up to two years for your neurotransmitters to rebalance. Mm. Like that's the impact that alcohol has on your brain. Mm. So a couple of questions because we're coming to the end and I I always get like this. I get so excited and so involved (laughs) in the conversations that I don't want them to end. But I just want to clarify, have we clearly spelled out what grey area drinking is? I think the easiest way for your listeners to be able to reflect as to whether they fall into the gray area drinking category is I'll tell you the scale and I'll tell you the signs. So if we think about someone's drinking as being on a scale of one to 10, one, someone who never drinks or has a glass of champagne at the wedding that they go to and then doesn't think about alcohol any other time. 10 is someone with end stage physical dependency on alcohol who needs to have medical support to withdraw from alcohol. So that's a one and a 10. I describe gray area drinking as about a four to an eight on that scale. So where we've got past the point of take it or leave it, and we've started using alcohol as a crutch in some way. So four to an eight, here's some of the signs that you might be a gray area drinker. You make rules around your drinking. So people that don't have a problem with drinking don't make rules. I had so many rules, right? You're not allowed to drink on a Monday and Tuesday. You're not allowed to drink before five o'clock. You're not allowed to drink on your own at home. You're not allowed to drink on at lunchtime unless it's with food out of the house. Like you constantly have rules, but then you often break them. You might find that you often set out to only have one or two drinks, but you nearly always end up having more. You find that alcohol's really starting to negatively impact you. You notice that your anxiety is increasing. You're noticing the impact on your sleep. You're noticing that your performance at work is is not so good. And you're starting to feel a bit meh. You know, you have this overriding feeling. And I can imagine that goes in the opposite direction. You may not notice that, but when you have a break, you notice the opposite. And that's why I say most adults in the Western world never take a long enough break to actually know who they could be or what their potential is if they're not drinking all the time. And that's why there is no harm in doing a 30-day challenge or something to just give yourself that opportunity. Some of the other signs might be you notice that you're thinking about alcohol. So you're making plans around when am I next drinking? When's the next event I'm going to? Will I drink at that event or won't I? You're starting to have this constant chatter in your head about alcohol. Or if you know that you're going to something and for some reason you can't drink, you feel disappointed and your thoughts are, oh, there's no point going. Like when you're starting to get into that point where you're, maybe you're worrying about your drinking. Maybe you've even Googled, am I an alcoholic? Maybe you've started to have those negative thoughts about the role that alcohol's playing, but everyone around you drinks and it's just incomprehensible to you to think about changing that or where would you even start? Those are some of the signs that we're in that gray area. Or who will be my friends is another question. If you're, if you're sitting there thinking, if I stop, 
who's going to be left. Yeah. And because we do need to wrap this up, what about if someone's sitting here thinking that may not resonate so much with where I'm at at this stage in my life, but my partner or my best friend, and they're thinking about them throughout this conversation, what would you say to them? You can't get someone to change if they're not ready to change. Like even if someone had said to me, I'm worried about your drinking, I'd have probably just ghosted them because I didn't want to hear it, right? I'm out. I'm leaving the WhatsApp chat. Exactly. (laughs) Like if we're not ready, but it could be things like sharing articles, sharing this podcast, you know, like just, oh, have you heard of grey area drinking? Just get the conversation going a little bit. Oh, I heard this woman and she's waxing lyrical about the incredible life she's having without booze. Who'd have thought it? Start the conversation in a gentle, less confrontational way and just see where it goes. Mm. So, Sarah, I'm hearing you say that a lot has changed for you. Like we've heard about the caterpillar into the butterfly, but what does that butterfly life look like for you? What are the benefits for you personally now that you've made this change in your life? I mean, there's so many. I wouldn't even know where to begin. But if I was to summarize the, the core benefits, it would be I trust myself And that inner critic has completely gone because every single day in a world that tells me I need alcohol, I deserve alcohol, I should celebrate with alcohol, I am making the decision not to drink. And I am so freaking proud of myself for that. And every single day there have been a thousand reasons to drink. And every single day I have chosen not to. And I have tapped into another resource, another tool that has helped me instead. And as a result of that, I have grown so much as a person. I can't even believe I'm the same person that I was when I was locked in that cocoon of being my caterpillar and unable to to break free. I have found personal fulfillment. Like I would never have dreamed that I would retrain as a gray area drinking coach. And I now have supported thousands of people to change their relationship with alcohol. I have a voice and I finally feel like I'm living my purpose, which has been incredible. I am role modeling to my kids that you don't need to have alcohol to have a good time. You can go and socialize and belly laugh and have a wonderful holiday and a fantastic time with your friends. And they see me do it all the time now. And knowing that my kids have had that role model to them, which I never had, and that they can make that decision. It's not a given that they have to decide to drink. If they decide, there will be no judgment from me. But they've also know, they've seen from me and my husband that we don't have to have alcohol to have a good time. And I think knowing as well that the impact it's having on my health, I have energy, I've lost weight. It's the best anti-aging drug out there. I think I'm aging backwards since I quit booze. I have reversed estrogen dominance. I have healed my gut lining. Like the physical health benefits are never to be underestimated. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with our audience. I wanted to ask about the strategies, but I knew we wouldn't have time to do them justice. You know, I didn't feel like we would have been able to open it up and give that little precious toolbox to the listeners, but I know that they can reach out to you and how would they find you? If someone's listening and they're like, I need to talk to her or wow, this is the first time I've heard this, I want to know more. 
How do they find you? Yeah, so head to my website, sarahrusbatch.com. I've got a 30-day program which takes you through everything you need to know about how to quit booze and all the tools and all the strategies that will help you that and that did help me. You can find me on Instagram at Sarah Rusbatch, on Facebook at Sarah Rusbatch, on LinkedIn, Sarah Rusbatch. And I'm pretty prevalent on all of those platforms because I'm on a mission to, to share the message that you don't need alcohol to have a good time. Sarah, I can hear all the wonderful things, but is it still hard? Not a single day is hard. You couldn't pay me to drink alcohol now because I know too much about it. I know what it does to me. It's a class one carcinogen that causes seven types of cancer. And I read recently that one in five breast cancer diagnoses is directly attributed to alcohol. And I feel like we've just been drip fed information to make us think that it's the golden elixir of life. And I feel like I've been let into a secret, which is it's actually not. And I've now created a life that is so much better without alcohol. There is not a single part of me that would want to pick up a drink again. And that is such an important message. Yeah. And I love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh, like on the floor, can't stop laughing. People can hear you from down the end of the hallway. Oh, my daughter, without a doubt. Like, And this has been the most beautiful thing, Ali, is that my connection with her has changed beyond recognition since I quit booze. Like, she is just the funniest person in my life and getting to just spend time with her, rolling around on the floor, laughing and connecting is just incredible. Mm, Thank you. Anyone else start to think about their own personal drinking habits throughout that episode? Sarah is so bubbly, relatable and honest. What a fabulous guest to have on Challenges That Change Us. I hope some of you reach out to her if you think she might be able to help you. And I will also pop a few different helplines in the show notes for anyone looking to talk to someone after that episode. Lifeline is always there to listen on 13, 11, 14. Also, call out to any leaders, HR or CEOs who would love to run a DISC personality workshop with your team. Now is the time to do it. Reach out to me this week and we can book in a call. Otherwise, guys, have a fantastic week and I will see you all next Monday. Thank you, everyone, for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 